Hi, welcome to the Queer History Podcast. I'm Dakota. I'm Dylan. And today we're talking about Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin was an early black civil rights leader, organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, and advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. He was openly gay all his life, refusing to hide who he was, even when it was used against him by members of Congress, the FBI, and even his own friends. Bayard Rustin was born in 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania. In his old age, he described Westchester, saying that when he was born, there was no restaurant in town he could eat in, and no theater he could watch a film in. Rustin grew up believing his grandparents were his biological parents, later learning that his older sister Florence was actually his biological mother. She had him out of wedlock. So he was raised by his grandparents, Jennifer and Julia Rustin. Rustin was very influenced by his mother, Julia, who was raised as a Quaker and inspired Rustin's future pacifist philosophy. He was very close to his mother, even telling her in high school about his desire to be with men more than women. She responded to him saying, I suppose that's what you need to do. Man, I've never had good experiences with uh, churches, but I have to say I'm always impressed with the Quakers. It just seems like throughout history, they seem to have been on the right side of things generally. Yeah, and right on for his mom, too, for like, um, that's pretty supportive. <laughs> yeah, for like 19, like such, you know, early 19th century, probably 1920s that that happened. Really good. Right. Rustin went to an integrated high school where he became friends and played football with both black and white classmates. As early as high school, he was fighting for civil rights. When he went with his white football teammates to a local restaurant and they refused to serve him, Rustin organized a sit-in with fellow students. In 1932, Rustin left for Wilberforce University, a historically black college. He wanted to pursue his love of singing. However, Rustin was quickly expelled from Wilberforce after organizing a strike, though not for civil rights, but instead for better cafeteria food. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, after, like, that's such a thing, I think, for like, you know, a 19, 20 year old to be indignant about. All right. It just humanizes him to me. <laughs> After being kicked out of Wilberforce, Rustin supported himself by singing in a quartet. He used his earnings to attend City College of New York. There, he became interested in communism, joining the Young Communist League, which would be used against him in his later life. This was back when everyone was into communism, all the actors who would later be blacklisted. Um, however, he did not stay in the Communist Party long, becoming disillusioned with the party when they refused to support racial integration. However, his short time in the Communist Party alerted the FBI to his existence. They would continue to keep surveillance on him for years. In 1941, Rustin joined a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a pacifist group led by pastor A.J. Musty. Musty was a huge influence on Rustin. Rustin was already a committed pacifist, but with Musty, Rustin got experience traveling across the United States, protesting and doing demonstrations. Rustin described his philosophy of civil disobedience, saying, The only weapon we have is our bodies, and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. 
I love that quote. I know. <laughs> That's like amazing. Musty, being a pastor, was uncomfortable with Rustin's open homosexuality and counseled Rustin to not live as a gay man, especially an openly gay one, warning him that it would ruin his reputation and weaken his argument for black civil rights, since discrimination against gay people was nearly universal, and the idea of gay civil rights was so far out of question back in the 1940s. The fellowship traveled to many colleges and universities to spread their philosophy of nonviolence. And during one of these visits at Bryn Mawr, Rustin met someone who had become very important in his life. A 20-year-old white student, Davis Platt, attended a conference Rustin spoke at. Platt later described Rustin saying he had absolutely no shame about being gay. In 1941, the United States entered the Second World War. Rustin, a pacifist, refused to sign up for the draft. He explained his reasoning, saying, I am a Quaker. But as everyone knows, Quakers, for 300 years, have on conscientious ground been against participating in war. I was sentenced to three years in federal prison because I could not religiously and conscientiously accept killing my fellow man. He publicly encouraged other men to refuse to sign up for the draft. He was very aware that he would be arrested for his refusal, and several of his pacifist friends were arrested before him. He was arrested in 1944 and sentenced to three years in prison. He was sent to prison in Kentucky. Platt, Rustin's lover, stayed in contact with Rustin throughout his prison stay writing letters to him, to ensure Rustin and his own safety, as well as to protect themselves legally, Platt pretended to be a woman in the letters. Knowing Rustin's love of music, Platt sent him a lute so he could play while he was in prison. They were together for several years. I just want to say I saw a picture of Davis Platt, and he was really cute. <laughs> um... <laughs> After the war was over, Rustin was released from prison, and he and Platt moved in together. It was during this time when Rustin would meet someone who would greatly influence his life. While continuing to work for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, he crossed paths with A. Philip Randolph, a black labor leader, and another very important member of the black civil rights movement. He emphasized how intertwined African Americans' civil rights were with economic equality and fair labor laws. In 1947, as part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, Rustin and 11 of his fellow members, both black and white, went on a mission they called a Journey of Reconciliation. They began riding buses throughout the South. They would ride different buses in different cities, testing the enforcement of segregation. They would have two African-American men, or a white and African-American man, sit together on a white-only section of the bus. The rest of the members would sit in inconspicuous areas of the bus so they could act as witnesses to what occurred. During this journey of reconciliation, Rustin was arrested for 30 days and served his sentence on a chain gang in North Carolina. When he was released, Rustin wrote an expose in the New York Post, which actually resulted in the end of chain gangs in North Carolina, which is like, if that was like the only thing that he did, that would be huge. But it's just like a little extra thing he did. (laughs) Very impressive. During this time and across the world, nonviolent resistance was being successfully used for another cause. 
Gandhi had led many Indians in a battle of passive resistance against the imperialist British government, resulting in India's independence. Rustin was, of course, fascinated by Gandhi's philosophy and studied the movement. In 1948, he was invited to India to meet the leaders of the nonviolent passive resistance movement. Earlier that year, Gandhi had been assassinated by a Hindu nationalist who believed Gandhi was too lenient on Muslim Indians. However, Bayard met with the other leaders of the movement, including the Indian Prime Minister, Nehru. Wow. Okay, can I just say, you are like killing it with the pronunciation. You're not stumbling, and I... I feel like last last time we were both stumbling a lot, so... Maybe it's working at Starbucks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I, I can never say any of the things on the Starbucks menu, so... <laughs> <laughs> Just as things seemed to be really taking off for Rustin as a public civil rights leader, his reputation suffered a massive blow that would be used as a tool to blackmail him and the civil rights movement for decades. In 1953, Rustin traveled to California for a lecture. While he was in Pasadena, Rustin was arrested for lewd vagrancy. He was found having sex in a car with two other men in a public location. Rustin pleaded guilty to a lesser sentence of sexual perversion and spent 60 days in jail. Wanting to protect the Fellowship of Reconciliation, he resigned. However, it may have been a case of quit so we don't have to fire you. While he was never a closet while he was never closeted as a gay man, this had Okay, see, I'm like, you've intimidated me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) While he was never closeted as a gay man, this became extremely public and he was humiliated. Depressed, Rustin visited a psychiatrist who encouraged him to keep his sexuality quieter so that he could focus on black civil rights, since even his liberal allies were not ready to accept his homosexuality. Rustin said about his homosexuality, I know that for me, sex must be sublimated if I am to live with myself and in this world longer. During this time in Alabama, the Montgomery bus boycott had begun. After Rosa Parks was arrested on December 1st, 1955, for refusing to give up her seat to a white man, the boycott has put a young pastor in the public eye, Martin Luther King Jr., At this time, Dr. King was about 25 years old, and Rustin was 43. Bayard Rustin went down to Montgomery. Isn't it crazy that he was... Oh, sorry. No, no. Sorry, but isn't it crazy that he was 25 years old? Yeah, really? (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm 25. (laughs) Like, you know? It's just, I was really surprised to learn that. Yeah. Bayard Rustin went down to Montgomery to advise Dr. King on the importance of using nonviolence. Because of the intense threats of violence against Dr. King, his home was being guarded by armed men. Rustin described Dr. King at the beginning of the boycott, saying, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. Rustin advised him and encouraged him to take up a pacifist ideology. In 1956, the boycott ended successfully with integrated buses and Dr. King a famous leader. 
1960, Rustin was working with King on a march that would take place at the Democratic National Convention, hoping to put pressure on Democrats to make civil rights a larger priority. Democratic Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was actually very dedicated to black civil rights himself, was worried about the embarrassing and distracting effect that this would have on the convention. Knowing about Rustin's past arrest, Powell threatened Dr. King, saying if he did not cancel the march and drop Rustin as an advisor, Powell would claim that King and Rustin were having a sexual relationship. Dr. King immediately canceled the march and distanced himself from Rustin. In early 1963, A. Philip Randolph, Rustin's mentor, came up with the idea for the March on Washington. Bayard Rustin quickly became responsible for organizing it and making it into a reality. Of course, many politicians, and especially conservative politicians, did not want this protest to happen. They began doing everything in their power to weaken the movement. When Rustin became a driving force behind the upcoming march, pro-segregation Senator Strom Thurmond publicized the fact that Rustin was gay, an ex-communist, and a draft evader in World War II. He read details of Rustin's arrest record, attempting to humiliate him and weaken the whole march. Some facts about Senator Strom Thurmond, though a staunchly pro-segregationist, he actually had an illegitimate child with a black woman. While he was in his 20s and living with his parents, they had a teenage maid with whom he had a daughter. He supported her financially, though her identity was kept secret until after his death. Despite his pro-segregation views, he remained in office in South Carolina until 2003. God, and I just feel like, you know, if you're a rich kid and you're in your 20s and you have a teenage maid, that doesn't sound consensual to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, there's that would be such a power differential. Like, Yeah, because I mean, it's probably back in the 40s, you know, just no way. And I don't know, what a hypocrite. I just wanted... I'm, I just wanted some ugly stuff about him in the podcast. <laughs> and, he, and he stayed until 2003. God, South Carolina. Get it together. Oh, that's where I live and yeah. I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's where I live and I realized. <laughs> okay. Rustin defended himself, making it clear to the press that he would not back down or resign and that the senator was attempting to discredit him so that he could discredit the march. Even Dr. King, when asked about Rustin's past on Meet the Press, defended Rustin's reputation. They reconciled while working on the march together. On the morning of the march, Rustin described his nervousness about the success of the march, saying, quote, I remember that 5.30 in the morning, I was out on the mall and the press was surrounding me, and they were saying, Mr. Rustin, Mr. Rustin, what's happening? You said there were going to be a quarter of a million people here, and there are scarcely half a dozen here. I remember taking out my pocket, a blank sheet of paper, and taking my watch out of the other pocket. I looked at my watch and the blank sheet of paper, and I said, Gentlemen, everything is going according to plan. And I was terrified people weren't going to show up. <laughs> I love that quote. Just, just, <laughs> like the biggest civil rights uh, event ever. And he's looking at a blank sheet of paper and just just faking it just faking it so it can happen <laughs> oh man <laughs> we can all take a lesson from that i know that's so brave and just so like determined oh man yeah. 
<laughs> there is a lot of great footage of the songs and speeches from the march, and Rustin can be seen in almost all of them, often with a stack of papers. If you look at photographs from the most famous speech, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, you can see Rustin at King's right hand. Rustin himself gave a speech, giving a list of demands made by the march, including civil rights legislation, segregation to be ended in schools, and an increase in minimum wage. With the enormous success of the march, Rustin again became a public figure and was again connected with Dr. King. However, after the march, Rustin's focus seemed no longer to match his former allies. With the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Rustin thought that the best way forward for African Americans was no longer protesting, but by getting into politics and changing things from within. He believed that, strategically, now the best thing to do is to become allied with the powerful groups, like trade unions and the Democratic Party, even when certain compromises needed to be made. One of the compromises Rustin made was continuing to support President Johnson during the Vietnam War. Many of his former pacifists felt betrayed by his refusal to publicly and strongly come out against the war. Rustin worried that the civil rights movement would become less clear if combined with the anti-war movement, and that they would lose the alliance they had made with the Democratic Party and other powerful groups and lose what they had fought for. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. That same day, Rustin flew to Memphis to organize Memorial March. Rustin said of the event, I believe that the world has lost the most important and devoted Christian in our society. In 1977, Rustin met the man who would, he would stay with for the rest of his life. While walking in Times Square, waiting on a corner to cross the street, Rustin met a man named Walter Neagle. Rustin was 65 at this point, and Neagle was 27 years old. But Neagle described Rustin as extremely youthful and did not affect their emotional connection. However, because of their age difference, Rustin worried about how Neagle would be recognized as his partner and heir when he died, since they could not legally marry. So he did something which seems unusual now, but was not uncommon at the time. Rustin adopted Neagle requiring Neagle's mother, who was accepting of Rustin and Neagle's relationship, to technically disown her son so he could be adopted by Rustin. This allowed Neagle to recognize this allowed Neagle to be recognized as Rustin's family. It seemed that now that Rustin's protesting and political life had begun to slow, he began to have a time for his personal life. Neagle said Davis and I are really the two people who are probably the bookends of his life. I think the period between Davis and me, which was really 30 years, was packed with work. Once Montgomery started in 1955 until 1968, when Dr. King was killed, I don't think he could have done justice to a long-term relationship. Man, it just seemed, it's so crazy the, the hoops that people had to jump through to, to leave, like to make someone their heir, to make someone recognized as legally connected to them. Yeah, like, I, I did, I, it's nuts, like adopting someone just so you can, yeah. like, and, and uh, that's what really gets me about, like, 
a lot of the arguments, it's like as if like religion has something to do with it when really it's about legal rights. <laughs> like, like you shouldn't have to adopt your partner just so you can. Uh. Yeah. And man, and I wonder if, uh, before the civil rights movement, I bet he wouldn't have been allowed to adopt him considering he was black and Neagle was white. Like he, so it was probably his work in the civil rights movement that made it, made him even allowed to adopt, adopt him, even though that's such a, uh, you know, such a crazy compromise. Even that had to be worked for. Gosh. While Rustin was always relatively open about his own sexuality, he became more active in gay rights towards the end of his life, once there was a gay rights movement for him to join. He encouraged gay people to come out, saying it was one of the most important political tools, as well as a moral obligation. In the late 1980s, he spoke about the progress he felt the black civil rights movement had made and compared it to the fledgling gay rights movement, saying... 25, 30 years ago, the barometer of human rights in the United States were black people. That that is no longer true. The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves gay, homosexual, lesbian. Bayard died in 1987 at the age of 75 of a perforated appendix. He and Neagle had been together for 10 years, and in 2013, when President Obama awarded Bayard Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Walter Neagle accepted the medal on his behalf. Sweet. That is. That's, that's a nice end. I like, I like that a lot. Thanks, Obama. Well, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>